Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Hello, and welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast. I want to say thank you for joining me today. I am Krista Montrager, also known as Theology Mom, and looking forward to this conversation today. And we're going to be talking about a topic called standpoint epistemology. And I want to draw attention to this issue because this is an idea and a practice that I am seeing more and more coming into evangelical churches and Christian universities, seminaries, and I want to continue to sound the alarm about it. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we get into this, I just want to ask you to do me a favor and make sure that you're subscribed to the my YouTube channel. Make sure you're subscribed to my podcast, Theology Mom, and make sure that when you subscribe on YouTube that you hit that notification bell and set it to all notifications so that you will receive a notification every time I post new content. I'm getting more and more feedback these days. People saying, I thought I was subscribed, but I never see your content anymore. And so occasionally YouTube likes to unsubscribe people and help you decide to no longer follow the content. So just take a minute, go there, make sure you're still subscribed, make sure you have that notifications turned on all, and then you'll be notified. That'll give you the best chance of being notified. Also, you can subscribe to my website. I send out monthly newsletters. You're only going to be getting one email a month that has a recap of all of the content that I've generated that month, along with a short summary. It's a great way to be able to see everything at a glance, but also it's an email form. So you can always forward it on to a friend. If you want to share the show, share the content with your pastor, small group leader, or friend. With that, let's get into it. Now, this past Saturday night, Monique and I on our All the Things podcast did a conversation with Dr. Doug Grutice from Denver Seminary on standpoint epistemology. So if you want to go check that out, um, that content is kind of, um, it it would be a supplement to this content. It it wouldn't replace this content. Uh, Dr. Grutice goes into more technical definitions than I'm going to give here. This podcast will mostly be providing some examples of standpoint epistemology. And um, again, this is an issue that I see that is becoming so proliferated in churches and Christian colleges and seminaries that you have likely already encountered it. You just might not know this is what this is called. And so I want to provide some practical examples in this stream so that you can be alerted if you start hearing your pastor using certain phrases or you're a college student and you start hearing your professor say certain phrases, you'll, you'll be able to know, oh, wait a minute, this, this might be standpoint epistemology. I might need to ask some deeper questions, okay? So we're going to start off 
by playing a very short clip from an acquaintance of the ministry. We've had some interchanges with Dr. Bill Roach. Dr. Bill Roach is a philosopher, he's a theologian, and he is arguably the heir or one of the critical heirs to the legacy of Dr. Norman Geisler. He is an ardent defender of inerrancy and the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. And um, you can go subscribe to his channel. If you've got kind of a more high-level philosophical bent, uh, theological bent, he is offering some good content there. So we're going to play a very short clip here to start us off. And uh, I think Dr. Roach gives a helpful word picture of standpoint epistemology, something that regular people can understand. If you want more of the technical definition and all the history behind standpoint epistemology, go look at our conversation from March 18th with Dr. Doug Grutice on our All the Things podcast. Um, but this is just going to be a little uh, kind of word picture explanation of standpoint epistemology. So again, I'm playing this. You're going to hear Dr. Bill Roach. Uh, we've heard the term standpoint epistemology. Can I get a show of hands? Have you heard that? How many of us have heard of standpoint epistemology? Okay, just a few. Bill, that's something, as those of us who are reading and having this discussion, it's a big word. What does it mean, and why is it significant that we understand that part of the conversation? So let's start with the second portion. The word epistemology, it's a big fancy word that, you know, when we were sleeping through our philosophy classes back in the day, and they wrote it on the board, and we just thought that we would never need it. Today's the day. You need it. <laughs> right here. So all it is is it's this idea of how do I come to know something? And we all live our lives in this way where we're intuitively coming to know things. You go outside and you wonder, man, how hot is it? And you step out and you, through your senses, feel it's warm. Or you go outside and it's raining and through your senses you feel that it's raining. It's how do we come to know truth? How do we have knowledge? And there's a whole variety of theories that have been given in the history of philosophy about it. But the first portion, standpoint epistemology, and we understand what a standpoint is. I'm here, and I'm looking at something from my angle, and you're in all of your different standpoints, and you're looking at it from your angle. And the argument that's made for this is, is that there's no real objective idea on the matter. You just have your standpoint, your perspective. There's no outside validating norms of this, except they're going to give one major objective, namely that standpoint epistemology is true for all of you, regardless of where you're at, and regardless of your claim. So it's internally self-defeating, but it's much deeper than that, and the way that's used in the literature today. So when he talked about this idea of intersectionality, that we're all sort of cut up into our different levels of where you are on this social sphere, and at the top it would be something, according to critical social justice, that if you're a white male who is straight and Christian, you're proverbially at the top of that list. You are the greatest oppressor of all. And as you work your way down, you can start to flip all of those. You could be a trans black female who's a Buddhist that 
wants to read the Quran, and you would be the most oppressed. Why? Because you're on the opposite spectrum of that. So here's how this functions. When we're talking about how standpoint epistemology works, an analogy given by James Lindsay is this notion of, it's known as grayscale, and don't let that word scare you. Just think mm -hmm. of it like this. If you are at the top of that intersectional ladder, you are going to look out at the world and everything that you see is going to be gray, regardless of how you look at it. The laws are going to look gray, the Bible is going to kind of be gray, the, the different ways we spend our money, the wars we've participated in, they're gray to you because that's your intersectional standpoint. But as you work your way down, let's just say we change one little facet of that. What if instead of being a white Christian male, you're a female Christian and you're living in society? Well, then you're privileged with not only seeing gray, but maybe a little bit of pink. So you're going to look out and you're going to see something that the white man can't see. And as you're sitting there, it is your job as the white Christian female to let your white male Christian husband, friend, brother, whatever, know. You have to make the knowledge of pinkness aware to him at every given situation. And as we go deeper and deeper into this, the more intersections you have, the more colors you can see. So if we take the, the furthest one, I don't even remember all the labels we put on it, like a transgender, black, Buddhist, whatever, you're not only going to see gray and pink, you're going to see a whole variety of colors, gray, pink, green, blue, whichever it may be, and it's your job to make that knowledge known to the person. And that's what critical social justice tries to do. It tries to say, because of your particular standpoint, because of your particular vantage point, you either see the colors or you don't. And what is the task of the, the social justice warrior? It's to make the colors known. But what if you're not in that category? What can you do? You're literally supposed to be quiet, trust, and listen. Why? You can't really know if they're telling you the truth. You just have to trust that they're telling you the truth. You can't see the color reflect upon the color, or any of these. And this is the idea that's being brought in as our watershed moment. Think about what this does to the idea that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Is that just your color perspective? Is that just your interpretation of Jesus? We've, we've heard this talked about in Bible studies for years about how foolish it is. But now that we've put a little bit of critical social justice and the stinging effects of maybe associated racism onto it, we feel guilty. We accept it. Why? Because if not, you're a racist, sexist, bigoted homophobe. It's unfortunate. You can't mm -hmm. win. You lose by playing the game. You lose by not playing the game. Okay, that's a helpful way to get us started here. And again, this is a very non-technical description of how standpoint epistemology functions in everyday life. And I'm going to show um, kind of a visual illustration to demonstrate what Dr. Roach is talking about. Now, you may have seen something like this before that Monique and I have used, but it looks a little different here. I'm using a different version of it. And sometimes we refer to this as the matrix of oppression. 
since I am using a different version of it, I'm going to call it the wheel of power and privilege. And this is something you may have seen in a diversity, equity, inclusion training at your place of employment, something like this. But this is what Dr. Roach was talking about in terms of intersectionality. And so if we look toward the center of the circle, we can see those groups who are the most power that they have, they, they have the institutional power, they hold the power. Um, another way of saying is, is that they are the most privileged. So if you've heard of the book, White Fragility and White Privilege, that is an idea put forward in that book. Um, this is an illustration of that. So you notice there right in the middle, um, skin color privilege is white skin color. Uh, you have privilege or power if you have a college education, if you're able-bodied, if you're heterosexual, if you're neurotypical. You might have heard, start hearing the word uh, rising in frequency, neurodiversity. This is a new kind of section, if you will, in the, the wheel of intersection. So if you're neurotypical, um, you would have be toward the center there of having the most privilege. If you're neurodivergent or neuroatypical, maybe you are on the autism spectrum, for example, you would be somebody who is less power and less privilege. Mental health. Uh, do you have robust mental health or are you very vulnerable? Uh, if you're um, fat studies is a rising area of critical theory. So if you're thin, you have thin privilege or slim privilege. If you are large or overweight, you have, um, you're in the more marginalized group. Uh, housing privilege, if you own property. Wealth privilege, if you're rich versus being middle class or poor. Language privilege, if you speak English. Gender privilege, if you are an inborn cisgender man and you are male appearing. In other words, you, you are a man and you dress like a man. Uh, citizenship privilege, if you're a citizen versus, um, versus those who are marginalized, it would be undocumented. So this is another way of conceiving of intersectionality. And so what Dr. Roach is saying is that those people who are uh, at, the, at the center here, those who are in the position of power or privilege, they might all have the gray lenses. But in order for us to really have um, a full picture of the world and truth, we need to include at the table, at the conversation, members of our community, whether that's in our workplace or our churches or wherever we find ourselves, we need to have representatives from the marginalized groups. Otherwise, we can't have a full conversation. This is what standpoint epistemology tells us. So in order for us to truly, if, we're, if we want to pursue truth, and all we have are a bunch of upper middle, upper class white people 
who are straight and healthy and neurotypical at the table making conversations about employment policy or on our elder team or on our pastoral staff or on our faculty at our Christian college, then we are engaging in white supremacy. We are engaging in building up a system and structure of whiteness. And we have an incomplete view of the world because everybody at the table is only wearing gray lenses. What we need are members from these other marginalized groups to have representation at the table because they have different colored lenses and they can provide additional information. So their role in the conversation is actually to give us truth that people who are in the middle there in the, in the privileged group, they do not have access to this truth. So without the marginalized people there with other colored lenses to describe things for us, we, and I would put myself in this category, in the group of the privileged, cannot have a fully truthful conversation. Okay, so hopefully that makes sense. So hopefully you're starting to begin to think about how this idea and adopting this way of thinking and this framework as truth would begin to impact simple things like your pastor interpreting the the scripture for you in his weekly sermon or in your small group Bible study or in the kinds of books you read in your Bible study group or um, the kinds of people that you hire on your pastoral staff. If you have a pastoral staff of that is only constitutes those people who are in that middle privileged group, then you, you are not having enough representation. You are not having people with the other colored lenses involved in your leadership. So we can't get to truth without members, for example, of the black and brown community. If what if we we the world is going to tell us you can't have proper um, truth conversations if you don't have people with lenses from the trans community? What if you don't have a disabled person on your staff? You can't have the full conversation. So hopefully you can begin to, to think about how this is going to impact your life um, if you adopt this framework as true. Now, I don't think we're under obligation to adopt this framework as true. I think we as Christians ought to question the framework. We ought to ask uh, whether or not this framework is a faithful representation of what scripture teaches. I think that's a very fair question to ask. Of course, if we are using, if we're abiding by the rules of the framework, then we can't even ask that question, especially for white, um, because we don't have the right color lenses. We don't have all the access to truth and so on and so on. So just merely even asking, is the framework legitimate? Is this true? Um, if we're a white person, we are already participating in white supremacy from the get-go. So it, it does present a bit of a catch-22 uh, situation, as Dr. Roach said there 
at the end of his clip. Okay, now I want to provide a few examples of standpoint epistemology in action in various degrees in evangelical spaces. The first thing we're going to look at is an article for from um, Dr. Jarvis Williams. He's a professor of New Testament hermeneutics at one of the Southern Baptist seminaries. And this article appears on The Witness, which is a website. Uh, I think it was originally started by Jamar Tisby. Um, I'm not sure if he's still involved with The Witness, but it was originally started with him. And this is an article entitled Biblical Interpretation for Black and Brown Marginalized Contexts, Part 2, The Importance of Reading Black and Brown Authors. It is dated April 27th, 2017. And we're not going to read this whole article, but I want to hit a few highlights so that you can begin to notice what standpoint epistemology sounds like. And when certain phrases are in play, um, that you need to try to slow the conversation down and begin to ask questions when you hear people, particularly your leadership, your professors, use certain phraseology. So I'm going to read a little bit uh, from Dr. Williams here. As a black brown professor of New Testament interpretation at a predominantly white seminary, I often ask my students whether they've ever read a non-white author. The amount who haven't is staggering. Based on my travels throughout the country and interaction with people who've studied at different institutions, I've learned that many students can earn undergraduate degree, a master's degree, and even a PhD in 2017 without being required to read a non-white author. Now, I think it's, it's interesting how he's framing the conversation. He's framing it purely at this point from a racial standpoint. So if we were to go back to our circle of privilege for a minute, he is saying, if you're going to be a good seminary student, you need to include, or even a good seminary professor, you need to make sure that your students are engaging with voices that are at the edge, at the margins, at, in, in this marginalized group. So if you're a white male going to seminary, you need to be interacting with all these different lenses, all these different shades, if you will. Now, I'll grant you, he's only talking about black and brown voices in this. But my question for Dr. Williams, one of my questions would be, you know, do you only stop with black and brown voices? Is that the only marginalized group that you want to hear from? Because I think it would be perfectly legitimate as these ideas of intersectionality become more mainstream in our culture that members from other marginalized groups listed here would also want to have a voice at the table. They would also want to participate in our church leadership and, well, how come you're not reading books by these people, um, trans people, uh, neurodiverse people, people that have other sexuality identities, other people with significant uh, differences in education or ability. Why are we only focusing on this small slice of the wheel of power and privilege? That was, that's a question I would have. 
And I think that while Dr. Williams might be content to stay in that one slice of the power and privilege wheel, I could see easily, and I, and I am starting to hear rumblings of this um, at the Evangelical Theological Society means it's not far-fetched to me that in another three to 10 years, we're going to hear calls for representation from these other marginalized groups. Okay, let's read a little bit more of the article. To some, this may not seem problematic. They say, who cares about what race the author is? It's all about the scholarship. In fact, a prolific New Testament scholar from a theological tradition different from mine once sharply criticized me for criticizing a scholarly essay on race published in a recognized monograph. The essay never referenced one non-white scholar. One of my criticisms was basically, how can a person write an essay about the history of interpretation of race in an area of New Testament studies and not even reference one non-white author? Now, a question I would ask here is, well, race is a social construct that was developed in the Enlightenment era. Um, race is not a concept in the Bible itself. So I, I, and, and I want to give Dr. Williams, you know, the benefit of the doubt here in, 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 on this issue, but this is, this is a legitimate question that I see comes up so often is this reading of the modern concept of racial categories and racialization, reading that back into the biblical text but that's anachronistic. There, the, the modern construct of race did not exist um, in, in the way that we think about it today until the Enlightenment. People did not categorize themselves according to their physical features of skin color or hair texture or that kind of a thing. So um, saying that you can't write an essay on race issues in the New Testament, first of all, I would ask, why are you writing an essay on race issues in the New Testament when that wasn't an issue? But secondly, you know, I'm not sure how the particular lenses would matter uh, on this issue since it's an anachronistic to read that back into the New Testament anyways. But be that as it may, notice how he's calling for these particular marginalized lenses, that this is a virtuous thing, it's a needed thing, it's a necessary thing. Um, let's continue to read the article a bit more here. I'm going to drop down a bit. I give lectures on the importance of reading black and brown authors in many of my seminary courses. I require students to read black and brown authors when the scholarship of these authors relate to the course content. And yes, I subject black and brown authors and white authors to rigorous critical analysis as my lectures affirm things that are helpful and sharply criticize the weaknesses of their arguments and conclusions. Well, I appreciate the fact that Dr. Williams, it seems to be advocating here that there is still an objective truth standard. He hasn't fully adopted the intersectionality methodology. He's, he's adopted it to some degree, it seems, but not to the point of saying that, um, different groups have different truth, if you will. Um, he just sees interacting with 
a wide array of voices and viewpoints to be of value. Okay, I, I can somewhat get on board with that. Let me continue and read a little bit more here from his essay. Certain readers, however, on this post may be thinking, why should we read black and brown authors? In the rest of this piece, I want to offer one reason, although there are many. Okay, I'm going to drop down a little bit here. And he, he's trying to make the argument that if you kind of have a, a situation where you have a small group Bible study and you have a bunch of white people in the small group Bible study, you will not be able to get to, to full truth. Um, too often, he says, some white and privileged Christians who read texts in certain middle class and privileged contexts offer interpretations that agree with or sustain their middle class, white or privileged way of life. So he's saying, if you're at the middle of that circle of power and privilege, you are going to read the Bible with a distorted lens. Well, how can we correct for that? Here is his solution. When privileged people read and listen to racially marginalized voices, and more importantly, study the Bible in the same sacred church spaces as racially marginalized voices, then those privilege shapes, when those whose privilege shapes their biblical reading, will more likely to see their privileged blind spots when they humbly submit to and listen to those who don't share their racially and socially privileged status. He's borrowing the exact wording from the circle of privilege, from intersectionality, and applying it to the, basically the small group home Bible study context. So if we have a Bible study full of white women, what we have to do is get some black and brown people in the Bible study that have different colored lenses that can help highlight the, the you know, the non-gray, the, the pink and the blue and the green perspectives that they bring to the text. And then that way we can have a fuller understanding of the text itself. This is so confusing because on the one hand, he wants to subtly seem to still adhere to an objective standard of author intent and meaning of the text, but he's, he's starting to wade into the waters of using the, the wording, the framework of standpoint epistemology. And again, I ask the question of Dr. Williams, why stop in this one slice of the wheel of power and privilege? Why stop the, on the marginalized voices of the black and brown community? Why stop there? How long until those who study under Dr. Williams or who are influenced by this kind of thinking expand that wheel and start going into the other areas? There is nothing in Dr. Williams' system of thought that would prevent that from happening. Now, Dr. Williams himself may not advocate for the necess necessity of people from um, other sexualities and needing to have representation from them or other genders or transgender. But he is looking, but in theory, he's opening the door for that. Now, later in the article, he also talks about um, class or wealth, you know, that we need to have uh, also people with some different lenses than just upper middle class 
So race, skin color, wealth, these seem to be the two slices of the wheel of privilege that he wants to focus on. And apparently I am not the only one asking this question. Matt Kennedy on Twitter, I just saw this tweet um, yesterday, and he makes a similar point that I am making. Matt Kennedy is an Anglican priest, and uh, his wife is Ann Kennedy, and I follow both of them on Twitter. They make very thoughtful tweets, and they're both um, historic Christians. They're, they're not progressive or anything of that nature. And Matt Kennedy is asking and making a statement, the very same statement that, that I am raising about Jarvis Williams' methodology. Now, Matt Kennedy's tweet is not directly about Dr. Williams, but it's, it's concerning the same issue that I'm raising. Matt Kennedy says this, um, and he's thinking about that wheel of privilege, if you will. He, he makes the, the observation, the same hermeneutic that turns women at the empty tomb into apostles and preachers makes David and Jonathan lovers eunuchs into sexual minorities and the Syrophoenician woman into Jesus's diversity instructor. This is where it starts to go. Like when you go the next step after what Jarvis Williams is doing, these are the kinds of things you will hear your pastor start saying. These are the kinds of ideas that are being put forward in our seminaries. Monique and I heard hints of these ideas at the last meetings in a couple of papers at the Evangelical Theological Society. So I, I just want you to get a feel for the kinds of things that are on the horizon so that when you hear people say these things, it won't catch you off guard. You will know, oh, this is standpoint epistemology in operation. Okay, let's look at another example. And this is going to be Dr. Esau McCauley. He is the author of a book called Reading While Black. He's a professor of either theology or hermeneutics at Wheaton College. And this is from a discussion that he did, I think, in 2022. Um, but you can find all the source material on the Woke Preacher Clips channel. And um, these will just be clips that we're going to listen to. But what I want you to listen for is how he's beginning to make the case that kind of the next step in standpoint epistemology is that no longer are you looking for the author's original meaning. Like I think Jarvis Williams still has some, some idea of connection to finding the author's original meaning, but he's open to the door for this wheel of power and privilege. But kind of the next frontier you might run into is hearing statements like you're going to hear Dr. Esau McCauley make. And no longer are we primarily concerned with finding the author's intent. Now there is an openness and a freedom to read our own situations into the text. And part of the situations that we would be reading into it would include what we call our social location. And by social location, what I mean by that is where you fall on this wheel of power and privilege. Your social location would be if you are white, heterosexual, rich, you speak English, and you're a man. That's your social location. If you are a dark-skinned Muslim woman who is trans, then you're, that is your social location, and you have 
more intersections that are at the edges of that marginalized group. So what I want you to notice, I'm going to play a couple clips here from Dr. McCauley, and I want you to notice how he's unhooked from the author's meaning, and now he is using social location as a lens to reinterpret the Bible itself. What I want to say is the black Christians who saw the prophets and the Exodus and the Psalms as paradigmatic for God's nature read the Bible better. And one way to know that is to look what Jesus does. When Jesus is making sense of his own vocation and ministry, what does he do? He pulls on the Psalms, the Exodus narrative, and Isaiah, just like the black church does. So in other words, my claim is the black Christians read the Bible and discerned God's purposes better. Such a liberation is on every page, canonical interpretation. So did you catch what he's saying there? Is that black Christians who read themselves into the Psalms or into the Exodus narrative actually interpret the scripture better and more consistently like Jesus than people who are closer to the middle of that uh, wheel of privilege and power. All right. Um, let us listen to a little bit wider context than that clip. I just played the short content clip to kind of get your attention. Now let's listen to a little bit wider uh, discussion of what he says. When I spoke about social location, social location means how where you're standing impacts what you see. And the criticism of what I... Social location is, a, is another word for standpoint epistemology. It was what I say is that you're bringing in yourself. And what I wanted to argue is the social location sometimes can help or hinder you. So, for example, if you happen to be in the economic and political and cultural control of a society, it's, and you then read a, the Bible in such a way that it supports you having all of those things, then your reading is distorted by your social location. And so the construction of Christianity to support white supremacy and the enslavement of black bodies was influenced by the social location of those theologians. It, it hindered them. Now, the social location of the black people as an oppressed underclass actually put them situationally closer to the nation of Israel. So it made them, because of their experiences, more apt to see what was intended in those texts. It's not because- Okay, so what he's saying is, if you are a black person, you have different lenses than the white person, you're at the margins, and you are closer in social location to somebody who is an ancient Israelite who was poor and had a darker shade of skin. You are closer in social location to that person. So you have lenses that more closely resemble the lenses of the ancient Near Eastern people that lived contemporaneous with Jesus than I do as a white person who is close to that circle of power. Do you see how he he's using standpoint epistemology, how he's using these social locations and lenses as a way of, of make, creating a warrant to read the experience of the black community and particularly the, the history of racism in, in America back into the text and then the black community can read themselves and their experiences into that Exodus narrative as well. 
And the reason for that warrant is because their glasses, their lenses are closer in social location to the ancient Israelites than my lenses. Okay, let's continue. More apt to see what was intended in those texts. It's not because it was magic. It's because in general, like if you read the Bible from the perspective of an oppressed person, the Bible is written to oppressed people. And so when African-American Christians made the argument, they were saying the following. We grant that there are these passages in Timothy and Titus and Colossians. But if you look at the vision of God that emerges across the canon, that God is on the side of liberation. And what you have to be able to do as a reader of the Bible is ask yourself, both groups were influenced by their social location, but who read the text rightly? And I want to say, paradigmatically for understanding God's purposes in the world is the thing which, upon which God builds his resume. And in the Bible, God builds his resume on a couple of things. I'm the Lord your God who made heavens and earth, and I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. So in other words, God as liberator is fundamental to his CV. He refers to it over and over again. As a matter of fact, when the people are oppressed in the prophets, what did they say? The same God who gave us an exodus the first time is going to give us an exodus again, leading to our restoration. And then when you get to the New Testament, what does Jesus actually do? He says, I am the new exodus. So fundamental to understanding God's nature is liberation from slavery. Okay, so what he's doing here is he's he's kind of mixing standpoint epistemology with James Cone, black liberation theology, and he's creating a hermeneutic of, or an interpretive principle or a lens, if you will, through which to interpret the Bible. So God is always on the side of the oppressed, but what you don't know is that this is the lens that he has in his mind of what he means. And so the lens of God being on the side of the oppressed, he's talking about the marginalized, that group at the edge of the wheel of power and privilege. And so this is what you have to understand is that he's, in, he's kind of combining this standpoint epistemology, this intersectionality with James Cone, Black Liberation Theology, and looking at these selective passages about God's um, action of liberation toward the ancient Israelites and then redefining liberation from our sins in the new covenant and then creating a lens through which to interpret the rest of scripture. This is a highly selective um, usage of scripture itself. So it seems very powerful, and this is how many errors are, is that it's not that there's no biblical case for, let's say, for example, word of faith theology. There is a biblical case that can be made for word of faith theology. The question is, is, is the few selected passages robust enough to offer a lens from cover to cover for the whole book? Now, Dr. McCauley is a very intelligent man, and what he is trying to do is create a lens that will be robust enough to take you from Genesis to Revelation and offer a history of redemption through this God frees the oppressor narrative. But what I want to tell you is that this is not a new idea. This is like a 50 to 60 year old idea. It's called liberation theology. And in particular, he's focusing on black liberation theology and kind of mixing that together.
Okay, let's let's um, play one more clip here from Dr. McCauley. So now I have to do some theological work in my own soul. Everyone is a theologian, has to put text in a certain order, emphasize some and say, these are my guiding principles for how I make sense of God in the world. And what I want to say is the black Christians who saw the prophets and the Exodus and the Psalms as paradigmatic for God's nature read the Bible better. And one way to know that is to look what Jesus does. When Jesus is making sense of his own vocation and ministry, what does he do? He pulls on the Psalms, the Exodus narrative, and Isaiah, just like the black church does. So in other words, my claim is the black Christians read the Bible and discerned God's purposes better. Such a liberation is on every page, canonical interpretation. Now, there we go. So the source for all of this, if you want to go read, uh, listen to the whole thing, is from Baylor. It was a Racism in the White Church Conference. And you can go check that on in YouTube. If you go to Woke Preacher Clips, he has a direct uh, link to it. And uh, the correct year was 2023. So hopefully that is of some help to provide another example of what standpoint epistemology sounds like in the real world. Now, I think that uh, Dr. McCauley's project is uh, um, more progressive than Jarvis Williams. Um, I would be interested to hear Jarvis Williams' comment on Black liberation theology. I don't know if he's commented on that or um, places that he differs with it, but I'm just trying to kind of not get into the weeds on Black liberation theology but you can read Monique's um, book review on James Cone on the Center for Biblical Unity website that she did last year and kind of get an overview for Dr. Cone's project. And I do believe that Dr. McCauley has been influenced by that to some degree. Okay, the final example that I want to share with you along these lines, and to me, this is the most progressive um, example uh, that I'm going to consider and bringing up for you. Uh, but this book is up for like book of the year or something of that nature uh, from Christianity Today. So I think it's worth highlighting because it is coming into evangelical spaces. It's a book called Abuelita Faith, What Women on the Margins Teach Us About Wisdom, Persistence, and Strength by Kat Armas. Now I'm about halfway through this book and uh, I've got the general gist of it at this point. And this gal, um, Ms. Armas, she teaches at Fuller Seminary down the road from me. And um, I think she's part of the youth faith pr- uh, project that they have coming out of Fuller, which there's a lot of churches. My old church uh, uses that um, as a resource and recommends it to parents, which I find interesting. But this book is, I would say, of the three resources that I'm sharing in this broadcast, this is the one that I think is the most progressive. And she has clearly been influenced by liberation theology. In fact, she says that out loud. She says the quiet part out loud, that there are all of these different lenses. In fact, in chapter two, she says this part out loud. Many young Christians are fleeing from the church because of this dichotomous all or nothing views of faith that disregard life's complexities, the views of faith that gloss over the messiness of life. And then down here at the bottom of the page, she says, before describing the details of Abuelita faith 
as I understand it, already articulated by a few scholars. And she mentions a number of what I would consider progressive leaning uh, scholars who have been influenced by liberation theology. Uh, one includes Robert Chow Romero, who has been a speaker at Biola University several times. You can just go right on their YouTube channel and search for his name. Um, he also spoke at the meetings for the Evangelical Theological Society a couple of years ago. I sat in on his talk. So these are not voices that are outside of the evangelical sphere. These are voices that have been impacted by liberation theology, but are being brought into evangelical spaces. I want to, she continues, I want to introduce other theological frameworks that have marked this journey. And then she goes on to list a number of what I call lenses. Besides the studies of decolonization and post-colonialism, these include, but are not limited to, womanist biblical hermeneutics, which womanist hermeneutics is black feminism, mujerista theology, feminist intercultural theology, and Latina evangelica thought. Each of these, I'm going to insert the word lenses, each of these perspectives, whatever you want to say, have helped shape my understanding of theology from the perspective of los humildes, which I think is the humble ones, the marginalized ones. So then she goes on to list a number of these thinkers. And then she says straight out, mujerista theology is liberation theology from a Latina perspective, a, a female Latin perspective. Womanist theology is the lived experiences and histories of Black women who speak from the margins. Mujerista theology takes the narratives and lived experiences of women seriously, emphasizing the struggle of Latinas at the intersection of ethnicity, race, gender, and socioeconomic status. So you should be hearing in all of this the wheel of privilege. And they're starting to do the very thing that I was suggesting is going to become kind of the next step after Jarvis Williams is, well, we got to get more lenses to the table and all of these marginalized voices. Okay. So this book, again, Abolita Faith is becoming hugely influential. And again, it is being presented by Christianity Today as one of their top picks of the year, a very important book that they want people to be interacting with. This is just straight up liberation theology. There's nothing new here. This is 1960s, basically imported from Roman Catholicism, the intersection of Marxism and theology with Latino culture. That's what this is. But now I guess evangelicals have progressed enough that we can say the quiet part out loud and we can just bring this perspective right into our churches. And this is my concern. This is why I am trying to sound the alarm about standpoint epistemology. I'm seeing the creep more and more and more. And this is, in my opinion, absolutely ruining how we interpret the Bible. As if we didn't have enough problems with 
the never-ending supply of topical sermons and pulling verses out of context and all of these other errors that are running around our churches. In my opinion, standpoint epistemology is bringing in confusion, massive levels of confusion by offering up this, this alternative lens that kind of sounds biblical because the Bible does talk about the poor. It does talk about, you know, the dignity that Jesus gives women, but it engages in these gross um, distortions about these issues. It starts to, to um, ask also different kinds of questions about representation and all the voices and all the lenses in order to study truth. And this is where things get deeply problematic. Look, if I'm in a home Bible study and, you know, I'm a woman or I'm a poor person, I can certainly bring that experience to the text. But that doesn't mean I've cornered the truth. I'm just as susceptible to sin. I'm just as susceptible to reading my own biases into the text. The second thing I would say is that all humans are created in the image of God. This means we have a fundamental unity about how we apprehend knowledge, how we, um, the, the faculties that we use, the access to the basic three laws of logic. This is part of the universal human condition. Saying that we have to have all these different lenses in order to arrive at truth is simply not consistent with scripture. And far worse than that, it's training us, it's programming us, it's shaping us to interpret scripture through a foreign lens, a lens that doesn't belong there. I hope this has helped to clarify the matter and that it's given you some things to think about. I would love to hear your feedback about this stream. I hope you found it helpful. Please share it with your pastor. Please continue to ask questions when your leaders bring up language like this. Don't be afraid to push back. You don't have to be pushy. You don't have to be obnoxious. But don't be afraid to push back. Don't be afraid to ask questions. If people get defensive simply by you trying to ask clarifying questions of where do you get this idea and can you help me understand, you know, do you think that the author's intent is, is objective? Do you think that Bible interpretation is objective or is it always subjective and culturally conditioned? And do we have all, need to have all these lenses at the table? Ask questions. If your leadership cannot handle the questions, that's a red flag. I do look forward to hearing from you. Good night and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.